Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Prime for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here on this very spooky Halloween night and today we are going to be delving into the unsolved case of the Black Dahlia murder and it's a case that became highly publicised due to the gruesome and upsetting nature of Elizabeth Short's murder and the details surrounding it have had a lasting cultural intrigue and it's generated various theories and, well, public speculation. But before I get into the case, I just want to say that everything I talk about today is information I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's episode does involve mention of sexual assault, brief mention of suicide and some overall not very nice details about the actual murder itself. So if this is something that you're not comfortable listening to at the moment then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So let's begin. This is the Black Dahlia Murder. Elizabeth Shaw was born on the 29th of July 1924 in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts and she was the third of five daughters brought into the world by her parents Cleo Shaw and wife Phoebe May Sawyer. In 1927 the Shaw family moved to Portland, Maine before settling in Medford which is a suburb of Boston and they moved in the same year, so 1927. So Cleo, her father, would actually build miniature golf courses until he lost most of his life savings in the 1929 stock market crash. And just a little over a year later, his car would actually be found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge with just no sign of him. He was nowhere to be found. So at the time, it was assumed that he jumped into the river that ran beneath the bridge, possibly... I don't know, he'd lost all his money, he might have thought that was the only way out, but we don't know. So believing that her husband had died, Short's mother Phoebe took on a job as a bookkeeper to try and support her family as best as she could. The family lived on, however, things weren't as smooth sailing as they would have hoped. Elizabeth suffered from bronchitis and severe asthma attacks and she actually had to have a surgery when she was just 15 years old after which doctors suggested that she should periodically relocate to a milder climate to prevent any further respiratory problems. So with that being said by the doctor, her mother sent her to spend winters in Miami, Florida with family friends for the next three years and It's also known that when she reached sophomore year, she decided to drop out of Medford High School. The year is now 1942 when Short's mother receives a letter and it's rather a surprising letter to say the least. So it was actually an apology letter from her presumed dead husband and it's revealed that he was in fact not dead and was very much alive and apparently he had decided to just go and start a new life in California. I mean could you could you imagine that whole time thinking that your husband had died when 
In actual fact, he wasn't. He'd just run away to start a new life without even telling anybody. I mean, I'd be pretty upset to say the least. That December, at age 18, Short took the decision to move to California to live with her father, who she had not seen since she was six years old. I mean, she must have been so excited to see her dad after all that time, but probably confused as well. It must have, she must have had a lot of emotions going through her. And unfortunately, it wasn't all roses as she would have hoped it would have been. I mean, only a month or so later in the January, she fled her father's house after arguments between them both had started to escalate a little bit. So after leaving her dad's house, Chart took a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now Vandenberg Air Force Base near Lompoc. Please correct me if I'm saying that wrong. And it's said that she was briefly living with a US Army Air Force surgeon who reportedly abused her. Um, so in mid-1943, she decided to leave Lompoc and moved to Santa Barbara, where she was actually arrested on September 23rd, 1943, for drinking at a local bar while underage. The juvenile authorities sent her back to Massachusetts, but she returned instead to Florida, making only occasional visits to her family near Boston. So whilst in Florida, Sharp met Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. And he was a decorated Army Air Force officer of the 2nd Commando Group. And she had actually told um, her friends later on that Gordon had written to propose to her whilst he was recovering from injuries from a plane crash in India. And she had actually accepted this offer, however... Sadly, Gordon died in a second crash on August 10th, 1945, and that was less than a week before the end of the war. How tragic is that? It's it's pretty upsetting, to be honest. She really thought that um, things would get better, but unfortunately, the outcome wasn't as she would have hoped. A year later, in July 1946, Short yet again relocated to LA to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, who was a friend from Florida, and he was stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base in Long Beach. So, Elizabeth Short spent the last six months of her life in Southern California, working as a waitress, and she rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. Now, She's been described and depicted as a aspiring or would-be actress. According to some sources, she did in fact have aspirations to be a film star, although she had no known acting jobs as far as we know. So, we're not really sure about that one. So, on January 9th, 1947... Short returned to her home in LA after a short trip to San Diego with Robert Manley, otherwise known as Red, and he was a 25-year-old married salesman that she had been dating, and Manley stated that he dropped um, Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA, where Short was meant to be meeting her sister, who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. And by some accounts, the staff at Biltmore 
recalled having seen Sharp using the lobby phone shortly after she was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 South Olive Street, which is about 600 metres away from the Biltmore. And that would be the last time that anybody would see Elizabeth Shaw alive. On January 15th, local resident Betty Bersinger was on a walk at approximately 10am with her three-year-old daughter. And whilst walking in the neighbourhood of Leamert Park, she came across something a little bit strange. She thought that she'd stumbled across a mannequin that had just been thrown out from a store. However, after a closer look, she soon realised that it was much more serious. It was in fact not a mannequin, but instead it was Elizabeth Short's naked body, brutally severed into two pieces. And as soon as Betty realised it was a real body, she immediately rushed to a nearby house and called the police. And just a word of warning, this next part is pretty graphic and you may just want to, you know, in case you don't like this sort of stuff. Short's severely mutilated body was completely severed at the waist and drained of blood, which left her skin like a pallid white colour. Medical examiners determined that she'd have been dead for about 10 hours prior to discovery, meaning that her time of death was either sometime during the evening of January 14th or the early hours of January 15th. But weirdly though, her body had been completely washed by the killer, suggesting that she wasn't killed at the scene and probably somewhere else and then moved to this spot. Short's face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating what is commonly known as the Glasgow smile. And she also had several cuts on her thighs and breasts where entire portions of flesh had been sliced away. Now, the lower half of her body was positioned about a foot away from the upper half and her intestines had been kind of tucked neatly underneath her body. So Elizabeth's body had also kind of been posed with her hands over her head and her elbows bent at a right angle with her legs kind of spread apart. I mean, it's awful. It's honestly awful to even read about. And to think that somebody could do something like this, I just cannot, I can't imagine it. Shortly after Elizabeth's body was discovered, a crowd of passerbys and reporters started to gather at the scene. An LA Herald Express reporter, Aggie Underwood, was among the first to arrive at the scene and took several photos of the corpse and crime scene. Now, near the body, detectives located a heel print on the ground amid the tyre tracks and there was also a cement sack containing watery blood and that was also found nearby, which just kind of adds to the mystery surrounding this whole case. The next day, on the 16th, Frederick Newbar, the LA County coroner, performed an autopsy on Short's body, and it stated that she was 5 foot 5, weighed about 115 pounds, and had light blue eyes, brown hair, and decaying teeth. 
They also found that there were ligature marks on her ankles, wrists and neck and a quote, irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss, end quote, on her right breast. A new bar also noted superficial lacerations on the right forearm, left upper arm and lower left side of her chest. So the body, as we know, had been completely cut in half and it was found that it was kind of a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. And this was done by removing the lower half of the body by transacting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. In it kind of then severs the intestines. I'm honestly not quite sure. It's kind of not very nice to imagine. But it was found that it was an actual technique that had been done, not just kind of somebody going at it. Newbar's report also noted very little ecchymosis, or in simple terms, bruising, very little bruising along the incision line, which suggests that this had been done after she had already died. And there was another big laceration that measured, I think, about four and a half inches in length that ran from her belly button and I think downwards. I'm not entirely sure about that one. Um, But the slices that were on each side of her face were measured at about three inches. So they were very big lacerations. Um, Fortunately, though, I'm not quite sure how, but her skull wasn't fractured, but there was noted bruising on the front and right side of her scalp with a small amount of bleeding on the right side, which was consistent with a blow to the head. So with all this information, what did Newbar put down as the cause of death? Well, he determined it to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock from the blows to the head and face. And lastly, it was also noted that it was possible that Elizabeth had also been raped anally and there were samples taken from her body to test for the presence of sperm, but the results came back negative. So it's, we don't really know. So ultimately, Short's body was identified after her fingerprints were sent to the FBI via sound photo, which was a device that transmitted images by telephone and was normally used for news photographs. And her fingers were on file from her 1943 arrest from when she was found drinking underage. So immediately following the identification of Elizabeth's body, reporters from the LA Examiner took it upon themselves to contact her mother and Phoebe, who was still living in Boston. Um, So, I mean, okay, I get it that some reporters will do this, but instead of making sure she, you know, knew about her daughter or maybe sending comforting messages, if there is such a thing... um, They told her mother that she had won a beauty contest. Yeah, you heard me. Yeah, they told her that she'd won a beauty contest and it was only after prying as much personal information as they could from Phoebe that the reporters revealed that her daughter had in fact been murdered. Like, what? How could anybody do that? And how absolutely mortifying would that be as a mother? Imagine that it's 
that's how you find out the fate of your own child. I Honestly, it's disgusting. I feel absolutely awful for her mother. And they dig themselves into an even bigger hole when the newspaper offered to pay her airfare and accommodation if she would travel to LA to help with the police investigation. But uh, newsflash, this was yet another ploy since the newspaper actually kept her away from the police and other reporters to protect their scoop. You know, they wanted that story for themselves and they'd well, go to any lengths to do it, even if it meant playing around with her own mother. The Examiner and another newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald Express, later sensationalised the case, with one article from the Examiner describing the black-tailored suit Sharp was last seen wearing as, quote, a tight skirt and a sheer blouse, end quote. And because of this, the media nicknamed her the Black Dahlia and described her as, quote, an adventurous who prowled Hollywood Boulevard, end quote. And additional newspaper reports, such as one published in the Los Angeles Times, deemed the murder as, quote, a sex fiend slaying, end quote. And, I mean, personally, I think that's very wrong. Um, but yeah, newspapers will go to extreme lengths to get the best story they could, even if it's wrong. So six days after Elizabeth's body was found, on January 21st, a person claiming to be the killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, who was the editor of The Examiner, and this person was congratulating him on the newspaper's coverage of the case and stated that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police to pursue him further. He also told Richardson to, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail, end quote. So on January 24th, three days after this, a US Postal Service worker discovered a rather suspicious manila envelope addressed to the LA Examiner and other LA papers, but it wasn't a written envelope. The individual words were actually created from newspaper clippings, you know, like you see in the movies. Um, and there was also a large message on the face of the envelope reading, quote, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow, end quote. So this packet contained Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, and also a address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover. And it was found that the packet had been carefully cleaned with gasoline, I mean, very similar to Short's body. And because of this, the police suspected that this envelope was in fact sent by the real killer. So the police tried their best to lift fingerprints, although they were only partial prints, but they sent it to the FBI for testing. However, the prints were unfortunately compromised in transit and therefore couldn't be analysed properly. The same day the packet was received by the examiner, something else popped up, maybe relating to Elizabeth Short. A handbag and black suede shoes were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley only a short distance, I think maybe two miles from where Short's body was found. And these items were taken in by the police and, just like before, they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, which fatally destroyed any evidence that there could have been to help catch this killer. 
So two days after this, there was another letter received by the examiner. This time it was handwritten and it read, quote, Here it is, turning in wed Wednesday, January 29th, 10am. Had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger, end quote. So this letter also named a specific location on the morning of January 29th but the alleged killer didn't appear. Instead, at 1pm, the examiner's office received another cutout letter which read, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. End quote. With the graphic nature of the crime and the weird letters that had been received, of course the media was going absolutely crazy over this. I mean, both local and national publications covered this story heavily, many of which reprinted reports suggesting that Shot had been tortured for hours prior to her death. But this information wasn't true, but the police allowed the reports to go around anyway to kind of conceal the true cause of death from the public. So, further reports about her personal life were also printed into the public eye, including personal details about her alleged declining of Hansen's romantic advances, and also about a stripper who was a friend of Short's, and she told the police that she, quote, liked to get guys worked up over her, but she'd leave them hanging dry, end quote. Numerous details regarding Short's personal life and her death have been points of public dispute. The eager involvement of both the public and the press in solving her murder have been credited as factors that have complicated the investigation significantly and resulting in complex and, I guess, inconsistent narrative of events. Some of these details that had been printed led some reporters and detectives to look into the possibility that Elizabeth was maybe a lesbian and began to question employees and customers of gay bars in LA. And this claim, however, remained unsubstantiated, sorry, And, I mean, just because she didn't get with all the guys doesn't automatically make her a lesbian. But, I mean, as many people as they can ask is obviously better than asking nobody. Um, But they they shouldn't try and put her down for that. If it's true or not, nobody knows. And, of course, there were more letters from this suspected killer again, made with, you know, the cut-out newspaper bits. Um, Another one had said, quote, I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me, end quote. So these letters kept on coming, but they were still no closer to finding out who had done this. And on February 1st, the LA Daily News reported that the case had, quote, run into a stone wall, end quote you know, with no new leads for the investigators to pursue. And the examiner continued to run stories on the murder, on the investigation, which was on the front page news for 35 days following the discovery of her body. 
And just a little side note here, um, lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue told the press that he had believed that Short's murder had taken place in a remote building or a shack on the outskirts of LA and then have her body transported into the city where it was disposed of. And based on the precise cuts and dissection of Short's corpse, the LAPD looked into the possibility that the murderer had been a surgeon or a doctor or somebody with medical knowledge. So in mid-February 1947, the LAPD served a warrant to the University of Southern California Medical School, which was located near the site where Charlotte's body had been discovered. Um, and they requested a complete list of the program's students. So the university agreed so long as the students' identities remained private and background checks were conducted on everybody, but again, no results and no closer to finding out. So we're in March now, March 14th, when another note was found from somebody claiming to be the Black Dahlia killer. And this was an apparent suicide note that was scrawled in pencil on a bit of paper and it was found tucked in a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue. And the note read, quote, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that, or this, sorry, Mary, end quote. The pile of clothing was first spotted by a beach caretaker who first reported his findings to John Dillon, who was the lifeguard captain, and Dillon immediately called the West LA police station to report this. So the clothes included a coat, a blue herringbone tweed trousers, a brown and white t-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks and tan leisure shoes in a size 8. But despite all this, it still gave them no clue about the identity of their owner. Um, so I'm going to go back a little bit, sorry, um, to the address book with Mark Hansen's name on it. So police obviously had it down as a suspect, so... Hansen himself was a very wealthy local nightclub and theatre owner and he was an acquaintance of the friends that Short had been staying with and according to some sources he also confirmed that the purse and the shoe that were discovered were in fact Elizabeth's. Anne Toth, who was Short's friend and roommate, told investigators that Short had recently rejected sexual advances from Hansen and suggested it as a potential cause for him to kill her. However, he was cleared of all suspicion in the case altogether. I mean, in fact, over 150 men were interviewed as potential suspects, like a man named Manley, who had been one of the last people to see Short alive. But again, he was cleared after passing numerous polygraph tests. But, I mean, we all know that they're not 100%, so make of that what you will. Police also interviewed several people found listed in Hansen's address book, including Martin Lewis, 
And no, not money-saving Martin Lewis from the TV, a different Martin Lewis. So Lewis had been a friend of Charlotte's, but he was able to provide a solid alibi for the date of the murder, as he was in Portland visiting his father-in-law, who was very sadly dying of kidney failure. So they interviewed so many people, and they still didn't have any solid leads still. And I think... There was a total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on this case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. There were so many people and there were so many various locations that were searched for potential evidence, including storm drains, you know, throughout LA and abandoned structures and various sites along the LA River. But again, the searches didn't bring any more evidence. And that must have been so frustrating. I cannot even imagine. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward for information leading police to Short's killer. And in today's money, that would have been a little over $120,000. So as you can imagine, this uh, after this was posted, there were so many people that came forward with confessions. Um, but most of these were dismissed as fake, which is terrible. I mean, I don't get why people do that, especially in a case this big and such a serious case as well. That is just wasting police time. I just don't get it. And I mean, kind of thankfully, several of these people were charged with obstruction of justice. So by the spring of 1947, Elizabeth's murder has completely become a cold case with no new leads and Sergeant Finnis Brown was one of the lead detectives on this case and he blamed the press for compromising the investigation through reporters probing of details and unverified reporting. In September 1949 it was decided that a grand jury would convene to discuss inadequacies in the LAPD's homicide unit based on their failure to solve numerous murders, especially those of women and children. And in the past several years, Shorts had been one of them. And in the aftermath of this grand jury, further investigation was done on Shorts' past, with detectives tracing her movements between Massachusetts, California and Florida. And they also interviewed people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans, you know, thinking they might be able to get a bit more information. But as you've already guessed, these interviews were not useful. They didn't bring any more useful information to this murder. So as we've already established, the notoriety of Charlotte's murder has spurred on a large number of confessions over the years, many of which have been deemed false. I mean, during the beginning of the investigation, police received about a total of 60 confessions, mostly made by men. But since that time, over 500 people, 500 have confessed to this crime. But, you know, some of those people weren't even born at the time of the murder. Like, why would you go through all that effort if it's literally not even possible? Not even a thought about it not even born at the time of the murder and people are still confessing to it. 
And not only this, but the amount of people that were kind of trying to put it on relatives. I mean, Sergeant John P. St. John, who was a detective who worked on the case until his retirement, stated, quote, it is amazing how many people offer up relatives as the killer, end quote. I mean, fair enough if you think you've got a shady relative, but that's crazy. In 2003, Ralph Astell, one of the original detectives on the case, told the Times that he believed he had actually interviewed Short's killer, a man who had been seen with his um, sedan parked near the vacant lot where her body was discovered in the early morning hours of January 15th, the, you know, when she was discovered. Um, a neighbour driving by that day had stopped to dispose of a bag of lawn clippings in the vacant lot when he saw a parked sedan. Allegedly, with its right rear door open, the driver of the sedan was standing in front of the lot. His arrival apparently startled the owner of the sedan who approached his car and peered into the window before returning to his car and driving away. The owner of the sedan was followed to a local restaurant where he worked, but ultimately cleared of suspicion. I mean, that has to be, right? That has to be such a huge lead and I feel like there's nearly no information about it. Like when I read that I was like, okay, so that's the killer. I mean, why would somebody be doing that at that time? <laughs> you know? But ultimately, yeah, he was cleared. He was, they were just like, okay, yeah, that's fine. There was another big um, suspect and that was George Hill Hodel Jr. And like the others, he was never formally charged with the crime, but he came to a wider attention as a suspect after his death when he was accused by his own son. Um, he was actually an LA homicide detective. He was called Steve Hodel. And he, his, so his son um, had said that he'd killed Shaw and committed several other murders. So prior to the Dahlia case, he was also a suspect in the death of his secretary, um, Ruth Spaulding. But again, he wasn't charged. He was also accused of raping his own daughter, but acquitted for that. He fled the country several times and ended up spending 1990, sorry, 1950 to 1990 in the Philippines. So that is a huge thing. Um, but again... He, he wasn't charged, he was cleared off of that. So as well as suspects, this case has had its fair share of theories and potential links. For example, several crime authors, as well as Cleveland detective Peter Perillo, have suspected a link between the Sharp murder and the Cleveland Torso murders, which took place in Cleveland, Ohio between 1934 and 1938. And that's actually a case that I'm looking at doing and it's very interesting and does have a few, it does have potential links. As part of their investigation into other murders that took place before and after the shark killing, the original LAPD investigators studied the Torso murders in 1947, but later discounted any relationship between the two cases. In 1980, new evidence implicating a former Torso murder suspect, Jack Anderson Wilson, aka Arnold Smith, was investigated by Detective St. John in relation to Short's murder. 
He claimed he was close to arresting Milt Wilson for Sharp's murder, but that Wilson died in a fire on February 4th, 1982. So the possible connection between Sharp's murder and the Torso murders received renewed media attention when it was profiled on the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries in 1992, in which Elliot Ness biographer Oscar Fraley suggested Ness knew the identity of the killer responsible for both cases. The 1947 murder of Jean French in LA was also considered by the media and detectives as a possible connected case to Short's killing. So French's body was discovered in West LA on Grandview Boulevard and she was found nude and badly beaten. And actually written on her stomach in lipstick was what appeared to say, quote, fuck you, BD, end quote, and the letters T-E-X below. So the Herald Express covered this story heavily and drew comparisons to the Sharp murder less than a month prior, summarising that the initials, BD, stood for Black Dahlia. And according to historian John Lewis, however, the scrawling actually read PD which could have meant police department. So there is a little bit of, we're not really sure about that. It could be Black Dahlia, but from what this historian saying, it is probably PD for police department. Crime authors such as Steve Hodel, which if you remember is the son of George Hill Hodel, and William Rasmussen have suggested a link between the Sharp murder and the 1946 murder and dismemberment of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan in Chicago, Illinois. And Captain Donahue of the LAPD stated publicly that he believed the Black Dahlia and the Chicago lipstick murders were likely connected. So among the evidence cited is the fact that Short's body was found on Norton Avenue, three blocks west of Degnan Boulevard. And Degnan being the last name of the girl from Chicago, um... It's, it, is, it does kind of have a link. And there's also striking similarities between the handwriting on the Degnan Ransom note and that of the Black Dahlia Avenger. Both texts used a combination of capitals and small letters. I think the Degnan note read part, um, there's a part in it that says, burn this for her safety. And both notes contain similar mishap of the letter P. Um, and have one word that matches exactly. So they had a look at both of these notes and they did have some similarities, but again, it could be a stretch, but we just really don't know. And I just thought, sorry, whilst we're on the topic of Steve Hodel, I forgot to kind of explain to you how he implicated his own father into this. So... Yeah, as we know, Steve Hodel um, blamed it on his father, George. Um, he said that George was the killer. And he was citing his father's training as a surgeon as circumstantial evidence. So in 2003, it was revealed in notes from the 1949 grand jury report that investigators had wiretapped his home and obtained recorded conversations of him with a unidentified visitor saying, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. 
They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, uh, now they may have figured it out, killed her, maybe I did kill my secretary, end quote. So uh, that is the kind of story behind that. Um, It's quite a big thing, actually. And he does kind of seem like a little bit of a shady guy, especially if that's what he said. And there have been many other books written about this case, especially the 2017 book Black Dahlia Red Rose by Pew Eatwell, and this focuses on Leslie Dillon, who was a bellhop but was also a former mortician's assistant, and he has associates, um, for example, Mark Hansen, Jeff Connors and Sergeant Finnis Brown, who was the lead detective who had links to Hansen and was allegedly corrupt. Now, Eatwell says that Charlotte was murdered because she knew too much about the men's involvement in a scheme for robbing hotels. And she further suggests that Charlotte was killed at the Astor Motel in LA, where the owners had actually reported finding one of their rooms, quote, covered in blood and faecal matter, end quote. And this was on the morning that Charlotte's body was found. So, I think in the end, they kind of came to a conclusion that I mean, one of the detectives anyway, that it had nothing to do with this case. But with rival newspapers, like one saying yes, one saying the other. But the matter of the fact is, we don't know. Short is now laid to rest at the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. And after her younger sisters had grown up and married, their mother Phoebe moved to Oakland to be near her daughter's grave. And she finally returned to the East Coast in the 1970s, where she lived into her 90s. On February 2nd, 1947, just two weeks after Sharp's murder, Republican state um, C. Don Field was prompted by this case to introduce a bill calling for the formation of a sex offender registry. The state of California would become the first US state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory. Short's murder has been described as one of the most brutal and culturally enduring crimes in American history, and the Time magazine has listed it as one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. Short's life and death have been the basis of numerous books, television shows and films, both fictionalised and non-fiction, but regardless, at the end of the day, this young woman lost her life at the hands of somebody so dangerous and we still don't know to this day who did it. And for all that time, that killer walked among and nobody knew a thing. And with all that being said, that does conclude today's episode. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and I do hope to have you back for another Primed for Crime episode. So in the meantime, I hope you're enjoying your Halloween night, whatever you may be doing, whether you are dressing up and going out or whether you're staying in just to watch some scary films. But if you are still craving for some more true crime cases, you can head over to the Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. Um, It's nice to interact with you guys, see what you like and see what you're not. So please be vigilant and please stay safe, everybody, especially on Halloween night. You know, there are some crazy people out there. And um, yeah, I'll see you later.